this week on the Backtable podcast. I think it's important to know the sinoidoscopy has really revolutionized, if you will, how we manage salivary gland disorders in otolaryngology. I think it's here to stay. I think we, a lot of patients have benefited from it. And we all need to figure out exactly where it uh, fits into the future algorithms. I think sometimes people who are doing it feel like gland excision then is a failure, which I would say it is not, right? So some cases like Gopi said, how many times are you going to let a stone recur? Is the patient going to let you intervene before it's simpler to do the definitive? So it, it's not the end all but it should be considered at the first step prior to gland excision in almost all patients. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This is the Backtable ENT podcast. For our returning listeners, thanks for, for coming back, stopping by again today. For those of you who are new, um, our goal here is medical education, and we seek to accomplish this through conversations with brilliant people from all over the world, and we hope that um, you can take this information and apply it to your everyday practice. Uh, quick intros before we get started. I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at Children's Health here in Dallas at UT Southwestern, and we have a really, really awesome show for you today because we have an awesome guest. We have Dr. David Cognetti. He's the chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. He obtained his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh. He completed his residency in otolaryngology at Thomas Jefferson and returned to the University of Pittsburgh for his fellowship in advanced head and neck oncology. When I was a second year resident at Jeff, Dr. Cognetti came back as a new attending and he came back ready to operate, teach and lead. He developed programs in transoral robotic surgery, as well as cell endoscopy, both of which are innovative technologies that eliminate the need for radical open surgery. On a personal note, Dr. Cognetti was my favorite attending at Jefferson. He taught me so much. Um, at Jeff, we kind of ran his service at that time when we were the PGY4. Um, and I just, he inspired me to be, be a better human being as I watched him take care of his head and neck cancer patients. So welcome to the show, Dave. We're gonna talk about cell endoscopy today. Um, before we get started, can you tell us just a little bit about your practice? Gopi, thank you. And Ashley, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, yeah, so I'm a head and neck surgeon by trade and training. And so I do all uh, ablative side of uh, oncologic head and neck surgery. And I sometimes tell people that my hobby is silendoscopy. Uh, but it, it, it's grown to be a large part of my practice over the years. So how does, how do these patients end up in your practice or how do they present? Is it a lot of uh, recurrent infections or tell us more about that? Yeah. So it's, so it's interesting to look back and, and I know Gopi in the introduction talked about our sound endoscopy program to think of back of what my experience was as a resident and now as an attending, because quite frankly, in an academic center, there was not a whole lot of uh, I don't recall doing that many submandibular gland excisions uh, as a resident because we didn't see a whole lot of this because it was mostly managed in the community. And, and since sinoidoscopy has become a treatment option, the practice has flourished and the, the referral patterns has uh, have grown. Uh, to answer your question directly, 
Uh, how do patients typically present? For the most part, they have obstructive symptoms. So they have swelling of the affected gland around the time of meals. And that can get to the point of every meal and the swelling goes up and it goes down after 10 or 20 minutes. It can be relatively intermittent where people in retrospect will report that they've had obstructive symptoms every once in a while going back over years, maybe even decades. But for the most part, we're dealing with obstructive patients. Of course, once you have a large salivary practice, then you're going to see all the other inflammatory things that go with salivary gland disorders and xerostomia, et cetera. But for the most part, we're dealing with obstructive. And so as this patient comes into your office, what other workup are, are you doing? Are you doing a lot of in-office ultrasound? Are you getting other imaging? T talk to us about that. Yeah, so so oftentimes patients arrive with imaging. So it, it's not uncommon for a patient to show up with their CT scan in hand or something, which is which is helpful and and you can look at it certainly if they have a stone. But I'm also doing a lot of in office in office ultrasound. And if people don't have imaging when they arrive, an ultrasound's a very good spot to start. Uh, and in, in fact, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later. I think this is one of those areas where my practice has evolved over the years. In terms of selecting imaging, it really comes down to what your suspicion is based on your history of uh, and their symptoms and your physical exam. So if people come in with no imaging and you don't have the option to do the in-office ultrasound, the people who you feel most likely have a stone and perhaps you even palpate a stone are ideal for CT imaging. Whereas the people who are more likely to have some sort of inflammatory disorder, if you're going to end up imaging them, those are the ones where you would consider an MRI. You know, there's a lot of overlap in between there. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's not really clear. And so there's not a, a wrong answer here. And the, the different imaging types complement each other. Is there ever a time where um, ultrasound is all you get? Like, is there ever that a patient presentation where you just need an ultrasound? Sure. A again, in my practice, most people already had some sort of imaging. But if somebody comes in with very classic symptoms, and I do the ultrasound and I can feel the stone and I can see the stone. And I mean, there, there's no reason to, to put them through a CT if I'm comfortable with the location and the examination. I tell patients that 20% of stones are radiolucent and may not be seen on CT. Is that accurate? <laughs> uh, respectfully, no, I, I don't <laughs> think it is. Uh, I, 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 I don't know was... where that came from. I, I heard that somewhere. Yeah, that, that, thank you for setting the record straight. Yeah, that, that, that's like a, that's, that's probably an older school belief back before we had uh, more modern imaging and techniques, uh, right? In, in, if you think about it before sinaldoscopy or people doing silography or other things, it was easy to blame, you know, a radiolucent stone as their source when in actuality, it's probably a stricture or some other inflammatory process. Almost all stones in salivary stones are calcium carbonate and they're going to be seen on a CT scan. 
you know, you might have the, one of the analogies I give some patients that you might miss a tiny stone, depending on the thinness of your cuts on CT scan. I'll tell people that a CT scan is like slicing them up like a loaf of bread. And if you imagine slicing raisin bread, you don't always cut through every raisin. So, so you, you might miss a small stone that way, but by and large stones will be visualized. Interesting. In terms of silography, I just think of it as like an esoteric imaging study because it requires somebody to, you know, cannulate this mandibular duct or the parotid duct, whatever one you're looking at, inject the dying imaging. Is, is that also, is that a belief that's kind of, no, we do that and people do it and that's a gold standard. I mean, I read about it, but I don't know if in practice I've actually ever ordered it. Yeah. So, so people do do it and believe in it. And, and one, one firm believer is Harry Hoffman in Iowa, and he's an otolaryngologist who does it himself. And I think that's the difference of why he has so much belief in it, because he has control over the success of it, the patient's comfort during it and can directly get the value and the feedback from it. And um, what he teaches is that there's therapeutic benefit just from the dilation and the irrigation of, of the contrast, et cetera. Most of us outside of Harry, we don't do it ourselves. So doing it requires finding somebody who has experience to do it. And as you refer to Gopi, it's technician dependent. Right. And as you start doing solendoscopy and try to cannulate the ducts and you realize that it's not easy, certainly for the submandibular gland to expect the interventionalist or who's ever doing it, who rarely does this procedure to be successful, it's a balance of, of your return on your investment there. And so many of us will go straight to solendoscopy. You mentioned MRI for maybe if you're expect, uh, suspecting inflammatory disorders. So would that make you more or less likely to proceed with salendoscopy after you get the MRI? Or what? can you talk more about what types of things you see and how that changes your management? Yeah, no, it, it wouldn't necessarily make me more or less likely as much as it will make me feel a little bit more prepared, one, for what to expect at the time of the procedure, and two, in how to counsel the patient in terms of their expectations for after the procedure. So if we look back at, at now outcomes data, and, and we've looked back at our early outcomes, and then there's a lot of work out of uh, UCSF uh, with a, a, a patient survey scale, it's pretty clear that parotid gland intervention in general has a lower success rate than submandibular gland. So more likely to require more intervention or they'll have some residual symptoms. And it's also pretty clear that inflammatory patients are in general, more likely to have continued or residual symptoms than obstructive patients. And it makes sense. Like if, if you have a simple obstruction, you remove the stone, you remove the obstruction, everything else works. If you have an inflammatory situation like radioactive iodine or Sjogren's syndrome, the whole system is out of whack. So it's, it's, it's harder to uh, fully resolve the issue. So the MRI in that situation might show multiple strictures or, you know, the parenchymal disease and other things that just temper the expectations of what you can achieve. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. In terms of um, going back to workup um, and talking about the inflammatory 
differential. Do you order labs? Do you just send them to room? I mean, when I think of pediatric patients, um, A, it's not as common. B, if it is, it's in kids, uh, depending on how old they are, the younger they are, I think of, you know, recurrent juvenile peritonitis, perhaps in my adolescence, perhaps a submandibular stone. And those are the two things that I usually see. But in adults, you have perhaps Sjogren's, maybe a history of xerostomia. Do you get a basic set of labs every time or what workup or referrals do you think other than imaging for these patients? Yeah. So again, differentiating between obstructive and inflammatory, if if it's obstructive, there's there's really no labs. I mean, you know what the problem is and th there's nothing that contributes from a laboratory standpoint. If it's inflammatory and it's not an obvious source like radioactive iodine exposure, then you would do that rheumatologic workup and, and test for Sjogren's, et cetera, just to, to give them that underlying understanding of what the etiology is. And when you're, um, when you're examining these patients in clinic, can you talk about, about what that looks like? I mean, I think frequently, obviously, we're trying to feel to see if we can feel a stone, um, massaging the glands to see what the saliva looks like as it's coming out. Is it cloudy? Is it, is it clear? Anything else that we need to be doing? Yeah, so absolutely. So a couple of things. Yes, you want to palpate the glands, the size of the glands, or normal size. Can you express saliva? So not only where does the saliva come out, is it coming out? And then as you mentioned, the quality of the saliva, is it viscous, is it cloudy, uh, et cetera. I would then urge you to pay close attention to the papillae themselves. And really, because uh, you can kind of predict how difficult it may or not, may not be to cannulate the, the punctum when you go on to do silendoscopy. And uh, it, that's probably more important from the submandibular standpoint. So if you can express saliva, you can actually sometimes visualize the punctum. How big does it look? Is it sitting up on a really floppy papilla? Or, it, you know, is it behind really tall incisors? Is it under mandibular tori? All, all sorts of stuff that just have you a little bit prepared of your success of cannulation. And then finally, palpating for stones. And most importantly, in the submandibular gland, you want to do bimanual palpation. And you, you really want to make sure, because to me, a, a major branch in the treatment algorithm is certainly for for people who are beginning this is how easy is the stone to palpate? And your best success at palpation is with bimanual palpation. You push the gland up and you deliver it to the finger in the mouth and there, the submandibular stones are almost always on the anterior medial aspect of the gland, right where the, the duct originates out of the gland at the hilum there. Of course, you, you would want to feel the entire floor of mouth and see if there's you know, check the entire ductal system, but th that's where you're going to find most of them. And then finally, we talked about ultrasound before. Ultrasound augments the examination because it allows you to uh, visualize first and, and direct your palpation. And then there's a great technique that Arjun Joshi has talked and, and written about called sonopalpation, where you, instead of bimanual palpation, you use the ultrasound probe to deliver the gland and push it up. And you can look and see your finger on ultrasound. And there's, there's times that you can't feel the stone without the ultrasound guiding you to it. And then you can feel it with sonopalpation, which is a, a great technique. 
all of these things sort of help you predict your success in the operating room and or your approach in the operating room. And then uh, it's also important as you're doing the massage to deliver the saliva that the patients understand that as well. I, I will say it is sometimes remarkable to me that by the time patients get to me and have had multiple bouts of saldonitis and, and had symptoms for a long time, that they've never really recognized or been shown how to massage and express their own saliva, which is such an important part of, you know, symptom management. And before we move on to talking about the procedure itself, another thing that comes up in clinic with these patients is risk factors and why did this happen? And is there anything I can be doing to prevent these? And that sort of discussion. Can you talk about how that goes um, with your patients? Yeah, sure. I wish I had a, a great answer. What I'm about to say is quite simplistic. And I usually tell people, uh, we believe it's related to dehydration at some point in their lives. And, and I tell people that saliva is salty. And when you get dehydrated, it precipitates a small piece of salt. And then when get, that gets, quote, caught, even though I'm not sure it actually gets caught, it's like an oyster making a pearl that will just get bigger and bigger and bigger with time. There, there's probably more sophisticated risk factors that, that we're not recognizing at this point, but in general, stone formation is, uh, we believe, related to dehydration. Of course, anybody who makes one stone is more likely to make more stones in the future. I talked, I counseled them about that in terms of recurrence, and that's uh, then different than the inflammatory risk factors, which include radiation exposure, specifically radioactive iodine exposure, and all the autoimmune disorders that can contribute to saldonitis. Mm -hmm. So, and going into kind of talking about equipment, because I remember, I think I called you from one of my first cases, and I, it's ingrained in my mind, you got to know your equipment, what kind of scopes you have, which ones have the side ports. Can you kind of go into just initially about uh, equipment and setup, I guess? What, what do you usually think about um, when you're taking one of your patients to the OR? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot there, Gopi. Um, so the equipment, you know, first is you, you, you do want to know your, your scopes. You want to know that they're fragile. You want to make sure you're caring for them and everybody else who touches them cares for them because these are not like rigid sinus scopes that, that most otolaryngologists have handled. Those are pretty resilient with a soundoscopy uh, scope. If you wipe the tip or dab it like you do in sinus surgery, that sometimes could be enough to break it. I mean, these are, we're talking one millimeter scope size. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, there are various sizes of the scope starting at 0 0.9 millimeters with no working channel to 1.1 to 1.3 and 1.6 millimeters. Those will impact what you can do through them, but you can't just say, Larger is better because if you tried to cannulate somebody with a 1.6 scope, most people doesn't have a duct that's big enough. So, so the real workhorses are the 1.1 and the 1.3 scopes. And some companies' baskets, and baskets are fairly frequently used, fit through the 1.3 and not the 1.1. And uh, so that's important. But I would emphasize the, the fragility of the, the scopes and, and how important it is to protect them. And then there's all sorts of different options for dilation. And early on in the learning curve, I think dilation may be a point of frustration. So you want to understand 
what those options are and sort of the algorithm to, to get cannulated. You asked me, I think about setup. Um, my, my setup emphasizes really protection of the scope. So the scope has a handle and then it has the actual scope itself. And I'll roll a little towel so that when it's placed down, it's, it's only there, there's only weight on the handle and that the, the scope itself is elevated and pointing away and protected from the people. I try to keep the Mayo stand as, um, uncluttered as possible. So there's not a lot of competition with the scope in terms of protection and real estate. And then the back table will have the stuff that you're not using that often. So the dilators and other things will be on the Mayo stand. There's all sorts of little things to pay attention to, like the orientation of the camera once you attach it to the scope, because if you're not paying attention to that, you finally get cannulated and you can't find the lumen. It might just simply be that you don't have the camera attached appropriately. There's settings on the, on the tower that, you know, people, you know, our, our towers at Jefferson have a setting called ENT and people will love to go to that, but you actually need the flex filter on. Otherwise you get a very pixelated view and, and tips and tricks like that. And can you talk more about cannulating the duct and dilating and different techniques and how you do it? Yes, happily. So <laughs> let me start with this in general. People are going to have an easier time cannulating the parotid duct because it, the papilla is friendlier and the opening is a little bit bigger. However, they will likely in general have a more difficult time navigating the parotid duct because there's usually a sharp turn uh, at about a centimeter, centimeter and a half where the duct crosses the uh, masseter muscle. And the parotid is more likely you're dealing with strictures or small duct and then the branches uh, into the parenchyma. Uh, the converse is true for the submandibular glands. In general, it's more difficult to cannulate the duct. The papilla can be floppy. The punctum is tiny. It, it, it can be a struggle. But once you're in it, navigation is easy. It's essentially a straight shot down to the hilum. Uh, and most stones occur there and not further down in the gland, it's much smaller. Um, so, so those are just some general rules to think about. My, there are two types of dilators. Uh, one I'll, I'll call the Stortz dilator, which is they come in sizes ranging from four zero 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 up until I think seven or eight. I never get to that big and they, they're the ones I started with. So the first several years of my practice and Gopi, when you were here, I'm sure that's all we were using and I've gotten very used to their weight and, and sort of navigating with them. The shaken dilators, uh, have the advantage that they're much shorter and, but they, they're tapered in a different manner. And what's the advantage that they're tapered end is that when you, and they, ju there's just five of them. They go from one, two, three, four, five. When you pass the one to the black line that's on them, the black line is bigger than the tip of the two. So if you're able to cannulate with one of them, the subsequent pass of each one is a little bit easier because the maximum dilation of the previous one was bigger than the tip of the next one. Whereas with the, uh, storage dilators, they're, they're basically straight dilators. What you'll, what I'll typically do is start with either the four O or the one 
always a small size. You just want to, you want to know where the punctum is. You, you want to express saliva to know where it is. So you don't want, uh, you, you certainly don't want any drying agents given by the anesthesia staff because you want the saliva. You don't want to sit there and, and massage out all the saliva before you're ready to go because there's only so much saliva each gland has. You don't want your your resident preparing and pushing out all the saliva before you get there. You know? I may have done that. And I think for our first case, I may have even tried to inject the floor and you're like, am I ready to find the Yeah, the yeah. And you don't, inject, that. you don't inject the floor of mouth with anything, even in a wake. Uh, that's a, a Gopi, thanks for bringing that up. Even when I'm doing these patients awake or light sedation, I don't inject with any local anesthesia until after I've cannulated the duct, at least with one or two of the smaller sizes. And my algorithm is if I have trouble with the first two sizes, I know it's going to be hard to go up. And so, uh, you know, thinking back to my own learning curve, I, I used to struggle and struggle and keep going and spend all this time. But if, if I notice that early, I'll switch to wire guided dilation. And there's, there's different ways to do that. There's commercially available kits that, that do that. There's some reusable dilators that have lumens in them, but the, the wire is going to be as small as the 4.0 dilator. Once you get that in, you know, you have the lumen and then you can do Seldinger technique. If I can't do that, depending on the scenario and all of this, uh, I, I just want to mind, clarify for the audience, I'm talking about the submandibular gland. Depending on the situation, if I can't cannulate at all, there is a cut-down approach, a retropapillary cut-down approach that's been described, I, I believe, by Jolie Chang and, and Dave Isley, where you can make a small incision just behind the papilla and get the duct right before it makes that final little curve to the punctum. And it, it's an easy spot to, to cut open the duct and, and access it. And sometimes that's necessary if the punctum's completely scarred off. Hopefully that answered the question. In, in terms of the parotid, it's, it's very rare to need Seldinger technique, wire guidance, or cut down. It's, it's just usually a, a problem. So your go-to is to start with the shaken? Is that what it, you said? Yeah. Shaken dilators? And then, and if that's not working, you can go down to the wire uh, to get something smaller. Correct. If, I, if I'm having trouble advancing up in size uh, at that point, I, I would switch to the wire and do Seldinger technique. And once you're dilated up, then do you do, you know, a first pass with a small scope that doesn't have a working port? Or do you just go straight to your workhorse where you're going to be able to find it and put it, the basket in and grab it and go? I go straight to my workforce. I only have one scope per case. I frankly have never used an, a non-working uh, channel scope, the, the 0.9. Now that might be different go because speak to pediatric experience, but I, I feel that less scopes on the field, less scopes to break. Yeah, I think um, the smallest one, the 0.9, I've used for the parotid duct. Um, and usually for that, it's just for dilating strictures or irrigating kenalog steroid uh, irrigation. For the submandibular, I think uh, even in the pediatric patient, starting with a 1.1 is okay. You know, I, as for me, the hardest part is always cannulating the duct and just making sure I'm in and dilating up. And then every once in a while, if I'm not sure, I'll um, do the Seldinger with the wire through my 1.1 side port and pass my scope that way just to make sure I'm in the right spot. Because 
you know, false passages, that kind of stuff can, can happen. So I was curious to see what you and Ashley, um, in terms of in-office sondoscopy, you know, and kids, the only thing I'm doing in office is scopes, taking out toys and beads from ears and noses. Um, but in terms of soundoscopy in the clinic, how do you choose your patients and is your technique different at all? Sure. I, I think the limitation of office soundoscopy has, has nothing to do with the patients, quite frankly. I think it's more to do with resources and equipment. And if you look at the places that have more experience or, or, or promoting an office soundoscopy, it's usually that their clinic is in the hospital with shared equipment and it gets them over that, that financial barrier. My practice is mostly uh, soundoscopy in our surgery center. Gopi, since you left, probably I switched to one day a month at our surgery center and it's allowed me to focus all of these cases into one spot. And it's allowed me to, to work collaboratively with the anesthesia team, et cetera, to really tailor how we manage these cases. And now we're, we're actually doing a, a prospective trial of, of Mac versus general, which it, cause I've seen over the years, I've migrated to Mac whenever I can, you know, outside of the, the deep, um, proximal stones in the submandibular gland, most things can be done under Mac. And quite frankly, even Mac is sometimes an excuse to have the anesthesiologist there. <laughs> Because most patients tolerated. So I, I believe the people who do a lot of office experience that patients tolerate this overall pretty well is just the barriers of the equipment and resources uh, can be the holdup. Ashley, I don't know. What's your experience? I'm not doing any silendoscopy in clinic because we, we don't have equipment. Um, I'm interested to, but but I'm not able um, right now. But I do a lot of like um, silothotomy you know, salidocoplasty, if I have a patient who has an obvious stone there in the floor of the mouth and they just want, to, you know, just, just take it out, just take care of it. So I am doing that a fair amount. When you, um, when you are doing these patients under Mac, do you do any, uh, anesthetic as far as, uh, like injecting like lidocaine gel into the duct or anything like that? Yeah. Great question. So, so before I get to that, I appreciate your comments, like all the stuff you normally do in the office do it. Do like that distal stone sitting right at the submandibular punctum, take it out. People are thrilled. There's no reason to take them to the OR to do soundoscopy just for something, you know, that's staring at you. Uh, and sometimes I get referrals and, and of course stones migrate, but I'm like, oh, let's just do this right now. And they're, they're very, very appreciative. So yes, uh, it's similar, similar practice there, Ashley. In terms of under Mac, yes, typically will do uh, local injection. But as I stated before, I don't do any local injection until after I have identified and at least partially dilated the punctum because I don't want to distort the floor of mouth or create a pseudopunctum with the needle tip, et cetera. And patients tolerate the smaller sizes just fine. Sometimes I forget to inject because they're tolerating it so well and I have the whole thing dilated before I even think to inject. Uh, in terms of in the gland, I will then irrigate, I'll, I'll cannulate with the camera and then irrigate with some plain lidocaine down the scope, just a couple cc's. And that I think takes the edge off. It's interesting. Most people don't have any issue with the punctal dilation 
Where they do have discomfort is with overexpansion or irrigation of the gland. And so lots of times I'll, uh, for inflammatory cases, I'll irrigate with Kenalog. And if you're not careful with the pace and amount of irrigation, they do get uncomfortable from the expansion of the gland. And then sometimes if you're treating a stricture and dilating the stricture, they have some discomfort with the dilation. Of course, of course, local for any time you're removing a stone with a hybrid approach, of course, that would be required. Can you speak to like the, the volume of irrigation? Because I feel like when I first started, I was like, you know, irrigate, eh, go, go, go. And then I feel like then I listened to more um, lectures about it and it was like, oh, no, it's a tiny system. You're like, you don't need to irrigate that much. Both are kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> you do want to be cautious and use it judiciously. I, I think I'm a little different than most in that I uh, use the uh, Medtronic sinus irrigator attached to my scope to control the irrigation uh, so that I have a foot pedal irrigation instead of having an assistant attached by IV tubing uh, and pushing with a syringe. To me, that developed because early on when we were first doing the, the syringe stuff, I describe it. It's this, I don't know if this is a good analogy. So you guys will tell me this, but I, I remember, so I have a lot of siblings and I remember when, when I was a kid, we'd go to the grocery store with my mom and we'd all want to hang on to the cart. So she, she'd be pushing around the grocery cart and she'd have two or three kids with her hand on the cart. And when you do that, you can't really steer the cart too well because everyone is pulling on it in a different direction, right? So, so when I was navigating with the scope, it would bother me that I'd go to take a turn and there'd be tension and pull from who's ever trying to irrigate and pulling with the IV tubing. So the, 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 what's great about the sinus irrigator is that when I want that little bit of extra, I just tap my foot, just tap my foot. And I know exactly when it's not a delay, like more irrigation, please. And just a little bit more, I, there, I don't have to do that. So to me, that's a big advantage. The disadvantage is you have to be cautious, as you said, Ashley, with the amount of irrigation. And uh, so you have to change the settings on that irrigator. You have to make sure they're turned all the way down and you have to be cognizant that you're not sitting there with your foot on the pedal all the time, because it is a, it can be a closed system if the scope size is bigger than the lumen size, and if it's a closed system, irrigation itself can actually tear the duct. And I, I've seen that happen. Uh, if you're not cautious in the, in the submandibular gland, a torn duct and aggressive irrigation can actually lead to a lot of floor mouth edema, which can be problematic. Now, that being said, usually, if you over irrigate a little bit, the gland swells up and I always warn people their gland's going to be swollen. It goes right down. I mean, massage, as long as it's got an exit, it's going to go down. For the hand system, it's hard on your assistant too. It requires a lot of force. And like you said, there's a different tug and it, it's hard to irrigate as the assistant as well. So I can only imagine. In terms of, you talked about the hybrid um, approach. And it kind of makes me think of my question about stone size. Do you feel like stone size matters in terms of, oh, yep, that one's, is there size where you're like, nope, that one's definitely going to be, let me take a look with my camera, probably have to cut down on it and take it out through the mouth or, hey, that one's too small. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to catch it with my basket. It's just so tiny. It's just kind of floating around. How does size play in a role? And 
And then at what point are you just like, no, we need to kind of cut down and, and change direction? Yeah, so size definitely plays a role, but it's not just size, it's size and location. And location, by that I mean which gland, but also location within the ductal system of each gland. And so those things all play into the algorithm. Gosh, there's so much here. So let's take the submandibular system first. The size will tell you whether or not you can retrieve it with a basket, right? So if, it, if it's less than four millimeters or so, you have a possibility of retrieving it with the basket. And that is the, the direction of the smaller access. And, and that's important too, because if you have a really thin cylindrical stone, doesn't matter how long it is, if it's thin enough to be pulled forward down the, the lumen. If it's really big and you could feel it, you're not going to waste your time trying to pull something, you know, a, a watermelon through a tiny, a tiny tube. You're going you're to know that you're going to go straight to the cut down. And so that's where my comments early about how patient really matter. It's the medium stones, the four to seven millimeter ish range stones that are the most problematic in the submandibular gland of, do you do a cut down? Do you do some sort of lithotripsy, et cetera, et cetera, that come into play there. The parotid usually doesn't get very large stones. It's, it's pretty rare that become symptomatic more often, but the parotid duct is a bigger challenge because essentially the entire course of the submandibular duct is against the floor of mouth. So if you cut into the submandibular duct, you don't even have to close it. And if you don't close it and it heals closed and drains through the normal system, great. And if it heals open and drains into the floor of mouth, great. I mean, that doesn't matter. That's where the saliva is supposed to go. You don't have that option in the parotid gland. The parotid gland, you, you don't have the same access to the duct and you don't have the, the liberty that if the duct leaks, it's going to make it to the mouth. Only the end of the duct makes it to the mouth. And so really the location and what we look at is the, you compare the stone on imaging to the masseter muscle. So by and large, Everything anterior to the anterior edge of the master muscle is going to be accessible transbuckle. And whether that's with the basket or cut down or whatever, you should be able to feel confident that you're going to get to it. Everything that's along the master muscle between the anterior edge and the posterior edge, you should feel pretty confident that you'll be able to visualize. And then from there, size and otherwise, you can determine Am I going to be able to get it with a basket? Am I going to be able to need to laser lithotripsy? Am I going to do a transfacial cut down hybrid approach? Everything posterior to the posterior edge of the masseter, you have to have some concern that you're not even going to visualize it because back there, you're now likely beyond the first branch point and there's just so much more ductal system. If you think of the, the duct as, a, as the tree trunk, the parotid has just many more major limbs and, and branches out to the leaves in the submandibular gland. So there's a good chance that you won't see it. Now, those patients tend not to be as globally symptomatic and you can have other options or ultrasound guided approach or non-intervention or Botox, like there's all sorts of things, but, but by and large, the master muscle is going to predict what you can expect to accomplish. 
And you, you mentioned lithotripsy, you know, break, breaking the stones up. Um, can you talk more about that? Are you doing that frequently or not, and how do you do it? Uh, not frequently, but I do do it. Some people don't do it at all. There's upsides and downsides. So first of all, external lithotripsy, let's start there. It's not available in the United States. Nobody in the United States is doing it. If, if patients really want it, they have to fly to Europe, et cetera. It's multiple treatments. Uh, it's the, to me, the question of the value, especially when you're adding a trip to Europe on top, it, it's questionable. Uh, endoscopic lithotripsy can be anywhere from, there's a little micro burr that you can have, which is frustrating at best. Yeah, I mean, it's not very effective. It, it, it you have to have the stone stabilized. You're, you're not just, <laughs> So it's most people, around. it's floating around. So most people don't do that. There was a pneumatic lithotripser in development that people were very excited about that is no longer in development and is not expected to be available in the United States. Some people in Canada had it and were using it. Is that going to just like pump air to break the stone or a balloon? What's pneumatic? What does that mean? Yeah, it, it, it's basically that. It's forceful air. And, and it was really impressive to see it. But bottom line, it's, it's not available. And then the final is the laser lithotripsy, which is again, endoscopic lithotripsy. That's the one I'll use for select patients. Urologists use it all the time. It's a holmium laser and it's good for select patients. I would never choose it over a cut down for a large stone because a large stone, I mean, it would take you hours to break it up. Uh, so where I use it are those small to medium stones that I just can't get with the basket and I'm worried that it's going to be challenging to find or get to with the cut down for the submandibular gland. Sometimes I'll see that ironically go in some pediatric patients I've had where I'm like, well, look, it's just a little too big. If I just zap in a couple of times with the laser, I get it out. I don't have to cut down, et cetera. Or they, um, I'll use it in those parotid duct stones along the master where it saves a transfacial cut down. Uh, again, those are more on the small to medium size. Why people don't like them is you have to be careful of thermal damage to the duct, which leads to stricture. You have to be uh, careful to remove the entire stone, right? You have a single stone that you're fragmenting into powder and pieces and they float around and then there's inflammation from the thermal stuff. It, it can be challenging. And, uh, which I experienced on the first time I used it and my, my scrub nurse to this day reminds me of is you can damage the scope. So if you're not really careful and you fire the laser with the laser too close to the tip of the scope, you will burn the tip of the scope and then you can't pass anything through that scope. And if you're, you know, back then we had one scope, so that, that ended the case. So. You have to be cognizant of that. Can we talk about tricks about getting small pieces out? Because I've had not using laser, trying to lithotripsy, even just trying to get a stone out. Because some of this, you know, depending on size, they're fragile. Sometimes they break. And then, like you said, if you start with a four or five millimeter scope, and now you have these little one, like a little one stone. millimeter piece. Yeah, a stone, excuse me. And it's now a small little one millimeter piece that's left floating around. That's not an easy thing to get out always um, because you have a basket that you open and then hopefully you close right on it. But sometimes it just falls through the net of the basket. 
Yeah. Uh, any, do you just send hope that the patient massages it out? Like, do you leave, ever leave some debris behind? I try not to leave debris, but those things are those sizes, the little pottery stuff or one millimeter things that, that are too small to grasp with a basket are the ones that you can expect to flush out. But I would try to flush them out right there and then, meaning your best chance for massage to work is while you're doing it. So irrigate with the saline, take the scope out, take everything out and really focus on massaging you know, what's in there. So overfill the gland and then massage it. And sometimes you'll see a lot of particles just come forward and you can watch them come out of the punctum and then check again. You can do, uh, you can withdraw on your scope and sort of create a vacuum and do some suction, uh, to pull some of that stuff forward. So there are, there are some tricks to that. If you have an open system. And what I mean by that is you already took out a big stone by doing a cut down into the posterior floor mouth. So the ducts open in the back, I'll put an angiocatheter in or the scope itself and just really power flush through because you can, there's an exit for the, for the irrigant and you can really try to get some of that stuff out. Speaking about cutting down and kind of doing the, the salathotomy, do you formalize that like with saladocoplasty? Do you put in sutures or do you let it heal? No, never. <laughs> Despite Gopi talking about all my patients in the OR, I have no patience for that. <laughs> and you don't. So, so let, let me be clear for the submandibular gland, for the cut downs, for the posterior near the hilum, I don't. And it goes back to what we talked about before. If they fistulize, they're fistulizing into the mouth, which is exactly where you want the saliva to go. It is very challenging to suture back there and hundreds of cases later, I've never felt the need to do it. That's different. The, the anterior floor of mouth or even the mid floor of mouth is a little bit of a different ball game. And earlier I described thinking about the parotid in thirds, anterior to the master, posterior to the master and along the master, I, I sort of think about the floor of mouth in thirds, anterior to the sublingual gland along the sublingual gland and posterior to the sublingual gland. Now the middle one along the sublingual gland is very, very rare. You're usually going to find the stone up front near the duct, either right at the punctum or that little curve of the, of the duct right before the punctum, or you're going to find them all the way in the back as they're entering, as the duct is entering the gland. So the ones up front. Sure, I might throw a couple of sutures to, to hold open the papilla as a, as a solid tocoplasty. The ones in the back, I never do. And the in-between is where you have to think about the impact of the sublingual gland in ranula formation, et cetera. And every once in a while, you think the stone is in the duct itself, but it's not. It's in the sublingual gland or in a branch to the sublingual gland. So for those in the, in the mid floor mouth, I'm prepared to, if needed, remove the sublingual gland or do an actual sialidocoplasty. So the edges of the duct up to the mucosa. And in that area, the, the duct is so much closer to the mucosa. It's, it's easy to do. And I'm not as frustrated. <laughs> do you use like a 4-O-chromic or do you? What do you? I, I usually yeah. just use Vicryl. I don't Vicryl. think it matters. Okay. Yeah. It's, cool. I don't think it matters. 
that's going to say that's awesome because I've spent a lot of time trying to sew way back to the back of my Never, couch. never again. So, never again. And I'm never going to do it again. But you're going to be like, <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I did that podcast with Cognetic. Yeah. <laughs> so Dave, for some of the ones that are really big that are in the back uh, and the floor of the mouth, I find that I end up, I have to cut down on those to take them out and they come back. Do you have any? They can, come right, back. Interesting. Stone, stones can come back, we said. And yeah. sometimes, you know, even you take this egg out and two years later, the same egg, there's another egg there. I guess my question is, do you do anything different on the revision cases? And two, may, maybe we can get into this after, but when do you think about using the stents, like the wall car or the uh, shaken stent? I, I think those are two different topics. Okay. Um, yeah. l- let's start with the first one. And I openly admitted earlier that I don't think we fully understand the pathophysiology of, of sialothiasis. And Kopi, when you're describing these patients, are they all kids, pediatric? For me, adolescents, when I'm thinking what submandibular stones usually are in my 13 plus. Yeah. And, and so I, I kind of wonder if that's a little different than some of the adult patients I see in terms of risk factors, because I always tell people, and and I usually tell the younger people, like, look, we can do all this and you can make a stone again. You've already made one. You're more likely than another person to make a stone. And you have, quote, decades of life ahead of you. So stay hydrated, et cetera. So I don't know that the ones who create stones younger have more propensity because of whatever, the makeup of their saliva to have recurrent stone formation. And it is what it is. Obviously, ideally, we, we get the stone out and we have as much flow as possible to prevent stagnation and future stone formation, uh, if you will. Uh, by definition, the fact that they've had a stone and we're intervening, they're probably more likely to make another. In terms of different approaches in recurrent stones, well, you just have to be cognizant of, of the potential for scarring. You have to be extra cognizant of the lingual nerve. And you have to be more realistic of what the expectations are because they might have their third and fourth stone. And at some point, the patient may prefer to, to have the gland out. Yes, speaking to complications, things that can happen, things that can go wrong. What happens if you perforate the duct, if you create a false passage, you're in the case what do you do? It depends. Um, so complications, I, I, I've given talks on complications and I, I think I've seen, meaning I've caused just about every complication you can imagine. I usually end the talk with like, has anybody else experienced anything more than what I've done? <laughs> and so, I mean, at all, you know, the, the dreaded complications, which again, I, I've had and people with experience have described is complete transection of the duct by pulling on a stone that you shouldn't be pulling on. So, so you have to be really careful of that. Ductal perforation is relatively common, not, it shouldn't be common, but you're going to see it if you do it and you're going to perforate either with the dilators because you're pushing them too far or you're pushing against resistance. You might perforate with Saldinger technique. You might perforate when you're trying to get through a stricture with the tip of the scope. There's all sorts of times you can perforate. If it happens, the, probably the most important thing is to not over-irrigate because once there's a perforation, everything you irrigate has access to, to infiltrate the surrounding soft tissue and you can end up with too much edema. 
beyond that, it's usually not that big of a deal. You know, if you can still finish what you're there to finish carefully, like remove the stone, it's ideal to not have to come back, but you know, the duct will likely heal up and, you know, go on with life. I don't know if that, that answered your, your question. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's nothing special you have to do. You don't have to freeze and stop and abort. You just, you know, carefully move on easy with your irrigation and, you know, do what you set out to do and it should heal up. Now, depending, you might not be able to move on depending on how big the false passage is and can you still cannulate beyond it, et cetera, et cetera. But in and of itself, it's usually not a huge deal. Do you routinely put patients on antibiotics after the case? And if not, would you be more likely to if you did perforate the duct? So in the beginning, I think I put everybody on antibiotics because that's just what we did. We sent them home with their antibiotic script, their pain medicine script, and this and that and the other thing. And then I was like, why are I putting these people on antibiotics? Go to enough courses and talk with other people. So then I was like, all right, let's put the ones that I do cut downs on, on the antibiotics because I'm, I'm violating the mucosa. They're at higher risk, et cetera. I would even say preoperative antibiotics, but going into a case, I wasn't able to predict necessarily. And now I've migrated to essentially nobody gets antibiotics. They, they go, they all go home with a paradox rinse or something like that. And by and large, they do fine. Every once in a while, I might have an extensive submandibular gland intervention come in uh, with a little infection and you put them on antibiotics a few days later and they end up doing fine. So I, I don't think antibiotics are critical in this situation. Even if you've like perforated the duct or anything like that, it, it shouldn't matter. No, I, I, I don't think it, it, you know, unless you have a huge concern, no. It, it, again, it, more than the, the small perforation is what else is going on in the case will we'll drive that decision. And do you irrigate with some Kenalog or some steroid at the end? I only do that for inflammatory cases. So I don't do it. If, if I go and find a stone to take out a stone, I do not routinely use Kenalog. It's questionable how much the Kenalog adds, but I, I think uh, if we're there, we're taking somebody for an inflammatory case, I want to give them the best chance of improvement of symptoms. So I will irrigate with Kenalog 10, usually between five and 10 cc's. Uh, for inflammatory cases. This is a good segue, I think, to get into the inflammatory patients. So let's say you have that, you know, thyroid cancer patient that's had the radioactive iodine. What is what does that case look like? <laughs> I think one of one of the things you were we were going to talk about was how how do I present sonoscopy to patients, right? And I do it in in a pretty simplistic manner. And so every one of our exam rooms has a sink in it, right? And I, I usually describe myself as a plumber. Yeah. And if you look at the sink, uh, I explain to them that their gland makes saliva and the drain to the sink is backed up, right? So for a stone, they have, they have a hairball or something in the drain, it's clogged, and then the sink overflows when you run the water. So the overflowed sink for them is, it, is the gland swells and they get paint. And they understand that. So I say to them, my job is I go in like a Roto-Rooter and I take out the clog. And the analogy works because sometimes they were offered removal of the gland. And I say to them, 
if you had a clogged sink in your house and you called a plumber and they came and said, I'll take care of your problem. Let me just take away your sink. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't really want that. Right. So right. L- let's take away the clog and that's the fix. And then I'll say the inflammatory pro- people is the problem with your situation is you don't just have a clog, you have a rusty sink. The entire thing is ruined, right? It, it, it affects not just the drain, the sink itself, the faucet, the water, water source, et cetera. So it's a different problem. It's less likely to get full resolution. And we have to ask ourselves what our expectations and goals are. So it's easiest to address obstructive symptoms and even inflammatory radioactive iodine patients can have instructive symptoms because they have strictures and they have mucus plugs and they have other things on top of their underlying rusty sink. And sonodoscopy does a pretty good job. And so if you look at the papers on it, people get relief of those symptoms after sonodoscopy for inflammatory problems. However, it's not going to fix the entire sink. It's not necessarily going to give them a, a, a stronger flow of water from their faucet. And so you have to be realistic if they're not there for swelling and or discomfort, and they're only there for a dry mouth, that you're not giving them the expectation the soundoscopy is going to improve their xerostomia. Now, the, the rusty sink issue comes into play when sonodoscopy doesn't work. You get in there and they're still having problems. You can't get the stricture open. They're still having swelling because it's good for my next analogy, which is Botox, which is often a, a backup plan or, or certainly in the treatment algorithm for these inflammatory situations. And I describe that as uh, for with Botox, we're, we're turning off the faucet and we're turning off the water source. So the sink can't overflow because you're not, you're not turning on the, the faucet at all. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. I'll have to steal that one. No problem. <laughs> For these uh, patients, um, your inflammatory patients, what's a good outcome? Like, uh, Hey, your symptoms should be better for two years, one year, five years. How do you follow them? And what, what, what kind of expectations? Yeah. I mean, what is a good outcome is really judged by the patient themselves. And so, so that's hard to say. There's a spectrum of how bad are they at the beginning and how much better do they feel? You likely, you know, you like to have it be months measured, certainly in months and, and preferably several months onto a couple of years. Usually what happens if you look at, so if, if we want to go back to radioactive iodine, radioactive iodine has a natural history uh, radioactive iodine induced sialadenitis has a natural history in and of itself that most patients will have their obstructive inflammatory systems, symptoms improve. And if you look, they, they usually present at six months or so after their radioactive iodine. And then their worst time frame is in that six month to 12 month or 18 month from a symptom standpoint, improve. I think part of that is that the, the gland is dying. And again, going back to the analogy, they're producing less saliva, so they're having less obstructive symptoms. So perhaps for those patients, the intervention is to take away the, the acute symptoms and they, they sort of find their equilibrium later. Cause I don't feel like we're ongoing treating them for years and years and years. Recurrent strictures 
you try to find that happy point where you get it open enough that you don't have to keep doing it. And if you can't, then those patients, you might do botulinum or something. In terms of recurrent strictures, is this where, when do you, do you use the stents? Like I keep going back to these stents. Uh, <laughs> what do you, uh, what are, you know, when do you ever think about using them? Do you use them? I use stents um, in select cases and it, it, it usually is in the parotid. It's sometimes submandibular depending on uh, my opinion of the duct and, and, and uh, what we did to it. But usually in parotid cases, oftentimes after laser lithotripsy or something where I, I, or a stricture where I just want to make sure we're open or a salidocoplasty at the end of the duct. But it's not that often that I use stents and I certainly don't routinely use stents and, or for the high layer or the, the posterior floor mouth cut down approaches and all that type of stuff. I don't. So I think, you know, we could probably talk about this for another hour. I know, um, I know. It is fun. <laughs> but we, we, we have to land this plane. Can you, um, you know, conclude this by telling us maybe, you know, any pearls that we might have missed or, or forgotten to ask or anything that, you know, our listeners just um, need to make sure they, they take home? Yeah, I, sure. I think for the listeners, because we probably will have a mix of listeners, people with experience, people with no experience and, and figuring out where it fits in. I think it's important to know the silendoscopy has really revolutionized, if you will, how we manage salivary gland disorders in otolaryngology. I think it's here to stay. I think we, a lot of patients have benefited from it and we all need to figure out exactly where it uh, fits into the future algorithms. I think sometimes people who are doing it feel like gland excision then is a failure, which I would say it is not, right? So some cases like Gopi, you said, how many times are you going to let a stone recur? Is the patient going to let you intervene before it's simpler to do the definitive? So it, it's not the end all, but it should be considered at the first step prior to gland excision in almost all patients. Uh, so it, it's very helpful for people, hopefully listening to this talk to get better understanding of, of what can be done with it and learn more about it so that their patients can understand it as an option. And, and patients themselves are seeking it out appropriately. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time. It was nice to reconnect today. I miss you. Um, I'm so excited that you're the chair now of the, uh, the Department of ENT at Jeff. I'm so excited to see all the progress and the excitement that's going to be going on uh, with the residency and the overall head and neck department there. So thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Miss you as well. And it's <laughs> great to reconnect. And Ashley, thank you for your time as well. This was a lot of fun for me. And you guys usually do a course or have in the past, right? Is that going to be coming back? We've been doing a course. We just had our fourth annual course in February. It was virtual, which has disadvantages, but some major advantages. The advantages were that we had registrants from, uh, I think, half the states to 20-something states and 10 countries across the world. So we, we had our, our biggest uh, representation to date, and we look forward to future courses as well. I would encourage people. Um, here's a, a good final tip. We all think our learning curve is with our hands and our techniques, 
Uh, a lot of sinoendoscopy are techniques that are pretty natural to otolaryngologists. The real learning curve is in patient selection and understanding the limitations and all that type of stuff. So uh, I would encourage people to take courses as they get going because it's, it's very helpful. In fact, I, I love courses because I still am learning from the other experts who do this a lot and we get together and we, we, we just love bouncing cases off each other and, and still learning new techniques. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So for our listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in today and joining us. For any new listeners, thank you for trying us out. You can find us on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, Apple, as well as a new platform called Ghana. I, I believe it's G-A-A-N-A. -A -A. It's a little bit more international, widely used, I think, in India. Please remember to rate, select, and I think anything else, Ash? Hit that subscribe button. It helps <laughs> us a lot. Uh, rate, share us with your friends. Um, we are on social media as well, Instagram and Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. That's a wrap. Bye. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs>